0: Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, to set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you that we are able to come together like this each Sunday. We thank you that that we can worship together, and we thank you that we join in the voices of the saints through the ages in saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And so on this Palm Sunday, as as we mark Palm Sunday, we we pray that you'd help us to realize our own need for a Savior, that you would speak to us through your word, that as we head into a, a, a passage today in Revelation that is packed with imagery, that you would use this to bring rest to our hearts, even where it is difficult to read. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It marks the beginning of Holy Week as we look ahead toward um, the end of Lent. And we do have the devotional guide that we have this final week in our Lent devotional guide that you can follow along with us. Um, We also look ahead. We will be together on Good Friday, recognizing and remembering and celebrating the somber moment of Christ's death on the cross in our place for our sin. And then Sunday as we gather to celebrate his resurrection from death to life as we this is Palm Sunday marks The beginning of this last week toward Jesus' death and resurrection, and as he he came into Jerusalem after raising his friend Lazarus from the dead and resuscitating Lazarus, there were crowds of people that led a procession, a parade, that is, he came from the Mount of Olives and into the east side of the city of Jerusalem and straight into the courts of the temple. And so as he did, people lined the streets waving palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Lord save us, Lord grant us success. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it as people were watching the king of all kings arrive in the holy city. And so today, this is a cry that we continue. We continue to mark it and to celebrate Palm Sunday because we continue to cry, Lord, save us. And in fact, if, if your heart is going to cry out that prayer and cry out and join in the voices of the procession saying, Hosanna, Lord save us, then there is a reality that first and foremost we need a reminder or need to realize our own need for a Savior. That's one of the most difficult realities we face Now, as we look around at the world around us, we wonder, like, God, why do you allow the existence of evil? Why do you let it keep going? Why do wicked people seem to get off easy? Why hasn't God just ended all this yet? All of these questions about our own need for a Savior and why God allows things to continue, it all comes to bear as we continue in our study in Revelation. This is a book that's apocalyptic literature, and so it's looking toward the end of all things. And, and so today we've seen this in cycles with almost different angles of, of, of camera angles on the events or different facets of a diamond looking through that we're seeing the different ways that the end of all things is described. And today in Revelation chapter 14, we come to another passage that describes the end. And in this, we'll see that things will be sorted out, that the wicked will come to justice, And that God will save his people. That's the major theme of Revelation chapter 14. Now, we're in this section of Revelation, chapters 12 to 16 that look at, that are a specific, they're, they're, they hang together as a few chapters. And so we've seen already in chapter 12 the, that Satan is described as a great dragon going after God's people, trying to destroy God's people, this great dragon and this ancient serpent. And we saw in chapter 13 that the unholy trinity of Satan and the first and second beast or the Antichrist and the false prophet, is, as we see that Satan works in our world today through anti-God authority and anti-God ideology. And so in all of this, we saw that, the, these, that Satan has people that take his mark proudly and that, that mark themselves in the patterns of this world, always falling short of God's glory and completeness. And that leads us into chapter 14 today. And so if you have a Bible, read along with me in Revelation chapter 14. It will also be on the screen for you. Then I looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunders. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn what that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from Earth, It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. This is, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been re- redeemed from mankind as the firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, "'Fear God and give him glory, for the, "'because the hour of his judgment has come, "'and worship him who made, the heaven, who made heaven and earth, "'the sea and the springs of water.' And another angel, a second, followed, saying, "'Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, "'she who made all the nations drink the wine "'of the passion of her sexual immorality.'" And another angel, a third, followed with them. They followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of His anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night." and then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from out from the altar, the angel whose, whose authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather from the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot in this text. We're taking it as one bite today. Because, and I think you'll see, it hangs together as a chapter. Now, I want you to see a couple of things before we get into this. I know that right now, if, if you're like me or like our staff team when we studied this, you're like, blood to the horse's bridles? What is a stadia? Like, eternal fire? Like, what, you, you, we get caught in that imagery, and we're going to come to that. But I don't want you to miss... What's happening in and around those images, which are wake-up calls to us as we read this text. And so remember, in, this is indirect. It's flowing out of chapter 13. In chapter 13, we read about there is, there is anti-God authority that will stand against God's people and bring them to their slaughter. There is anti-God ideology that will stand against God's people and require those who want to stand against God to take its mark. And so we've seen this in the ideologies and systems and thought structures of our world that people bear these marks as a badge of honor to say, this is who I am and where I am aligned. And so we have these fears, and you see this in Christian circles about what the mark of the beast might be, but when we continue to read into chapter 14, we see something about the way that this imagery of a mark on our foreheads is being used, and I want you to notice that it is in the midst of the fearfulness of the great dragon making war on God's people and having the power structures of the earth in authority and in ideology, it's in the midst of that and the fearfulness of Satan's power that what we are brought back to in the first five verses of chapter 14 is a reminder of where the ultimate power lies and that it is not on the thrones of this earth. We are brought immediately back to the scenes in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, where we saw imagery of the throne of God and the lamb at the center. And so John looks, and on Mount Zion stood the lamb. So now Christ is standing, and, and, and those who are with him, he is surrounded by the 144,000. And if you remember, this is also, John was told, look for this number, and he looked, and it was a great multitude, that God is doing a work among all people, of every people and tribe and language and nation, saving people for his own glory. And so that we can trust that God's family is not bound by, by our ethnicity and culture, but instead he is gathering people from the whole earth. And that, that this image that God's people are around him and they hear a voice singing and there's a new song and, and Christ is reigning over all things, even in the midst of the fearfulness of the advance of what seems like Satan's victories. That's the context of chapter 14. So we see in chapter 14 the great harvest. That's what this chapter is about. And we have a few observations, three observations and two points of application today. First observation, God's people have been sealed. God's people have been sealed. He looked and they had the Father's name written on their foreheads. They were, and so we see that God has sealed those who are his own, just as those who are following Satan and caught up in the systems of this world are marked by it, God's people are marked by him. And so there's a celebration now, they're, they're playing harps, they're singing, and so in the midst of, of their own slaughter, when we come into God's presence, it's nothing but celebration, and remember, back in chapter 5, they're singing a new song, but this isn't that mysterious. Back in chapter 5, look at what we read. It's talking about the vision of the throne and the 24 elders before the Lamb with golden bowls full of incense bringing the prayers of the saints before God's presence. And it says, and they sang what? Hey, we got one person that's with me this morning. All right. I know it's been a while for a lot of you, but I need you to be with me here. All right, so so Kiana's with me. What were they singing in chapter 5? A new song. That's familiar. That sounds just like chapter 14. But chapter 5 gives us the song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? He's singing to Christ. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now in chapter 14, it tells us this new song can only be learned by those who have been redeemed from the earth. What that is saying to us is that there is a celebration happening and those who are God's own are the only ones who can understand the beauty and the glory and the majesty of redemption. And so this portrait then, the new Testament, all of scripture really, but is, is rich with marriage imagery from the beginning, from Genesis through Revelation. We see a lot of it coming up. And so when we get to this, it's those who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. It's those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, who have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of the lamb. In their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. This is wedding imagery. I don't think what John is saying here is that the only way you get to be part of the 144,000 is if you are celibate and virgin at your death. Though that's lifted up in Scripture, that sex is not needed for us to experience self-fulfillment as much as that lie is driven into us everywhere right now. But no, this is saying God's people are pure and have not prostituted themselves out with false gods. That, that they will be carried through to the end. This is the imagery we see in Ephesians chapter 5, talking to husbands and wives who are Christians, and husbands are told, Love your wives, how as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." Paul goes on to say, husbands, this is how you are to love your wives. But there's this mystery, this image of Christ in the church as a bride that is pure and devoted to him. But notice it's not the church's own purity, it's Christ who purifies us. And so what are the marks of God's people that we see at the beginning of chapter 14? Is that they are fully devoted to Christ alone, with nothing compromising that. And that they follow him wherever he goes. That whatever Christ calls us to, we follow. This is his call to his disciples all the way through the gospels, over and over and over again. Follow me, follow me, follow me. And it's not changed. And so it's those who are fully devoted to Christ and follow him wherever he goes. It's the image of a shepherd in the sheep. Know his voice, we read in John 10. We just got a couple of weeks ago. We're two and a half weeks into having a puppy in our house. And the puppy we got, I swore for 20 years I would never have a pet. And then it happened in like five days, and now it's, now, now we have it, and it's not going anywhere. But it's, it's a mix of an Australian sheepdog and a poodle, so it's an Aussie doodle, which is another thing I never thought I would hear come out of my mouth. But this, this little dog is cute and fuzzy, but he, the sheepdog in him, he will not ever leave us. Like, he, he wants to herd us in the house It is constantly under our feet. He will, if you walk around the house, he will follow you everywhere. If you're out, if we're outside of our house, he will follow us everywhere. He, he will not leave our side. And so today, as I was even reading this again this morning, all I could think about was our little Fozzie who won't leave my side and he's so devoted and so loving, and, and it's such a simple and pure picture, not a sheep, but a sheepdog. Um, but there's, an, there's something here that captured me of like there's a simplicity and a beauty to the devotion to Christ that is pictured here, that we follow the voice of the Lamb wherever he goes. This is important for us to understand that, that Christ is reigning, and that God's people have been sealed, because it shows us something of what is so essential about the church. And that the church is so important. Our world does not see churches as essential. This is true right now. We can see it going on. In D.C., our city has struggled to even have categories for churches through this last year. It's, they don't know how to handle churches. And, and, you know, lots of, like, there's, you know, suddenly people can become aware of the Bible when criticizing churches. And so it's very quick that all of a sudden people will know all kinds of scripture and quote it towards you if you're a church. And say, like, well, judge not you're like, you're right. Those two words appear in the Bible. <laughs> and there might be context for them. Or people that'll say, well, you're not really loving your neighbor very well. It's like, wow, that is, that is true. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we're called. This is the second greatest commandment. Can I tell you about the first one? But, I mean, we got that one with us. There's a construction project that Ebenezer, our host church, is doing in the lot that is it, that adjacent to the building right behind me right now, and there was one neighbor that posted something on, like, a Google review of, this church is terrible and doesn't know how to love their neighbors, and I was like, dude, it's not ours. <laughs> it's not even our project. So people can quote scripture when they want to be critical, but there's not a category. Churches right now in our city are seen as the same category as concerts, And sporting events and spectator events, and that's really what it's seen as, is that the church's ability to gather in worship is nothing more than a spectator event. That couldn't be further from what happens as the body of Christ comes together. And we're trying to take precautions and and be wise, but also there's a point where we should never be surprised when the world around us doesn't see the church as essential. How could it? They don't know the song that we're singing. And so we have a responsibility to, to tell a beautiful story and to show the gospel in, in the way that we live our lives. It ta- says later that, that we can rest from our labors for our deeds will follow them. And so there's an importance of how we live. But make no mistake, if you are in Christ, you have been sealed for the day of harvest. You have nothing to be afraid of. The second observation in the text is the whole world has been warned. And this is where it gets to some of the more frightening imagery, Right? So there's three angels that come out in succession. The first one cries out an eternal gospel, and what does he call out? It's a warning to the whole world and a call to the whole world, essentially a call for repentance, saying, Fear God, give him glory, worship him, he's the creator of all things. A second angel then comes and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So the first one says that there is a call to worship God. The second one says, everything around you, this world and everything it values, is crumbling. The, the prostitution of people's souls with false deities and the sexual immorality is crumbling. It has an impending doom. And then the third angel comes out and warns that there is going to be torment for those who follow the beast. And so whether we realize it or not, the presentation of all of Scripture, but especially what we're seeing here in this text, if we just focus here, is that you are part of one of two kingdoms that are at war with each other. You will be marked as the follower either of Satan and his beasts or of the Lamb who is slain. You'll be marked in your life as a follower of the systems and structures and power systems of this world or as one who has submitted to themselves fully to follow the voice of the Lamb wherever he calls you. And so the way that Revelation presents this is that you are, you are in either the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of the lamb or the kingdom of the dragon. And we think that our society is so innovative now, that, that it's so novel and so new, and that the things that we're facing and the things that we're deciding and the things that we're pressing, it's the first time ever. But, but if you look at, first of all, world history, you'll see very quickly that that's not true. And if you look at the cry of the second angel against this world, you see that it cannot be true. We we are nothing if not a culture that drinks deeply of the intoxicating wine of our own passions and sexuality. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Sex has become identity. To speak against sexual activity is now seen as an attack on a person's dignity. Dignity rather than being able to say that we can affirm someone's personhood and beauty and value and have disagreements about the activities that we pursue the church has too often fallen into the same thing though that in the church we've cultivated more of a purity culture that says that if you do sex the right way and if you do it the way that it's prescribed and then then you will be perfectly fulfilled and perfectly satisfied And so unwittingly or not, in the church too often, sex has been held up in the same way as a pathway to self-realization and self-actualization. And so people will see you, and if you're single, they they look at you like it's an unfortunate reality. You ever feel this pressure? Singles, where people be in conversation and be like, so don't you want to be married? What's taking so long? And then you read scripture and you realize, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you were all single like I am. Because then you could be more committed to the work of the kingdom of God. You'd be less distracted. Paul says, listen, when you get married, you feel the tension of your family He's saying, I'm freed from all that, but both are a gift, is what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a gift to be single, so use your singleness. It's a gift to be married, so use your marriage. But neither one is better than the other, but he does say, like, hey, but if I, on the other hand, like, if you're sleeping around already, like, at least get married. It's better to get married than to burn with passion. But, but it's not like one is lifted up as, as better than the other. It's the opposite. And actually, the, the, the storyline of Scripture skews toward singleness, Like Jesus is very clear that in the resurrection we won't will be like the angels, not marrying or being given in marriage, and so that doesn't carry through in the resurrection and into eternity. Now I hope that Alyssa and I will be the closest friends that I that that will be together through eternity, but but sexuality is not a part of the picture, and in fact. Let's just realize for a moment that the single most self-fulfilled and self-realized person who ever lived is Jesus, God in the flesh, fully man, fully God, and he was a single virgin at his death and resurrection. So I know, I understand that that some of you who are single would really like to return the gift of singleness to its (laughs) sender. But... There's nothing wrong with you if you're not married. Marriage doesn't make you more holy or more usable in God's kingdom. And in fact, sometimes it compromises your ability to give attention to God's work. And so do what you can to see God's purpose for you in the season you're in. And on the other hand, in marriage, sex is a gift. It's beautiful. It's fun. It's good. But make no mistake... As a pastor, I don't talk to many married couples that come into my, end up in my office and say, you know what, there's some hard things, but our sex life is great. It, 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 most couples struggle with that aspect of marriage, and, and sex doesn't solve all your problems. It doesn't remove your insecurities and fears. It doesn't make you more of a person. It, and, and, but in this, what, what I want you to hear today, isn't because I don't think this passage is most directly about sex, but there's a reflection of something in our approach to sex, what you need to hear is, you are more than your desires and your appetites. There's more purpose for you and your life and your eternity than your desires and your appetites and your passions. And again, this goes beyond sexual appetite. God's covenant with his people is pictured as marriage from start to finish. It's Sinai. It's pictured as a marriage. God says, I want to move in with you. Do you want to take on the law Is what it looks like for us to live together in this bound covenant? That's why when, when the golden calf incident happens, and they you know they have 40 days out at, at the foot of Mount Sinai that Moses is gone, meeting with God on the mountain, and in 40 days, they decided to fashion a golden calf and start worshiping it. Aaron said literally, this Israel, O oh Israel, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Totally taking God's work and ascribing it to Egyptian deities. Moses got down from the mountain, shattered the covenant before he could deliver it to God's people. I am convinced that that was because he didn't want the full impact of that law to come down onto bear of these people. I think it was an act of mercy. And that when he got down there, do you remember what Aaron said? He said, I don't know what happened. We put gold in the fire and out came this calf. Like the worst explanation ever. Because the language that's used in the Hebrew is that, that Aaron fashioned the gold around the calf, that he was molding, they probably had a wooden base that they then molded the gold that had been melted into and used hammers and tools to make this idol. And so the, what, what God made the people do is, is really bizarre unless you read it in the whole of the Torah. They had to grind up, burn and grind up the golden calf that they had made and he made the people drink it. Like, pour the ashes into water and made him drink it. What, we, what you might not realize is that that was a test later on that was given in the Levitical law for marital infidelity. That if someone was suspected of adultery, they would take dust from the floor of the temple and put it in water and make the person drink it. And if they were guilty, they would get sick. God was showing his people they had been unfaithful to the marriage to him in the covenant. All throughout the the Old Testament prophets, the language that's used is that God is the one that's pursuing as the loving husband and his people are running away as the adulterous wife. And so this is language, and then we saw it already in Ephesians chapter 5, and it carries through into Revelation, it says language of the passions of sexual immorality has deep spiritual connotation, not just about sex. But what we need to hear in this passage today is there is a warning that all who have turned to worship the gods of this world, that have and our great cities, are in danger. If you're worshiping success and power and wealth and admiration and comfort and power. And so listen to the words of the first angel. Turn, repent, fear God, worship him. He's the creator of all things. And third, the third observation, so God's people have been sealed, the whole world has been warned, and third, the great harvest is coming. And so we see this in the harvest of the earth. First, there's an image of Jesus seated on a cloud. This is imagery straight out of Daniel. Is Daniel looked ahead and talked about one like a son of man seated on the cloud who, who ruled over fr- both heaven and earth. What, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. And actually, on the week he got killed, so as we mark the holy week that begins on Palm Sunday, the title that Jesus took for himself, son of man, is what made, pe- made, made the religious leaders at the time lose their minds because they knew that he was ascribing something of deity, to himself and so that image that Daniel has of the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven it's this moment it's Christ coming with the great harvest and taking his harvest sickle and reaping the earth of the harvest and and so this is presented first as Christ harvests everything and it is a glorious beautiful moment as Christ harvests those who are his own to himself this is something Jesus had talked about in Matthew chapter 13, he told the parable of the weeds, or some in, if you have an older translation, it'll call it the wheat and the tares. And he talked about that, that there was a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while he was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. So the servants came in to the master of the house and say, hey, did you sow bad seed in your field? Did you not get good seed? And he said to them, no, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then what do you want us to do? You want us to go and gather everything in? And, and he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." So Jesus had used this imagery in a, in a parable before to say this is what's going to happen in the end and to answer the questions that we have of saying like, God, why do you allow wickedness to continue? Why do you allow the, the evil acts in this world to continue? When we look around our world right now and we see shootings in Denver or in, 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 in Colorado, when we look around and we see the, the rash of violence against our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters that, that is disgusting and vile and is just constantly on an increase right now when we see these wicked acts and we cry out what why god do you let this happen did you mess things up jesus has a hard answer of saying it's not time to end things yet because the wheat has to grow but things will be sorted in the end justice is coming righteousness is coming for those that are marked as his, sealed as his, there's a promise that you'll be gathered together, part of the harvest by the Son of Man. And by the, for those marked by Satan in this world, these are disturbing images. The torment and fire, do you see the description in verse 11? Smoke and their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. The winepress of God's wrath Blood up to horses' bridles. This is common war imagery in the ancient Near East. This is an expression that would be used of total defeat and conquest. The 1600 stadia is 184 miles, so almost 200 miles. People, are, There's all kinds of ink spilled about what this might mean. Um, it is interesting that if you go from... Tyre in the north to Egypt in the south. It is 1,684 stadia by measurement. And so there could be imagery here that it is total defeat and that the promised land itself is covered in blood. But the imagery here, like, like we've seen in Revelation, there's imagery that is vivid and it paints a portrait of underlying realities. And so these are, these are portraits that are supposed to communicate something to us of, being, of those who are cut off from Christ because they have chosen to worship not Christ, but the gods of this world. And so they're cut off then in the end from the ultimate source of all that is good in this world. When we get to chapter 20, we're going to take some time to a whole Sunday to explore what the Bible has to say about final judgment. But for today, maybe we can just let it rest in the, that these images are supposed to show us a reality that we don't want to experience in the end. God's wrath and his judgment that has no end. But what's clear here in Revelation and elsewhere is that no one comes under God's wrath accidentally. It's... It's not like we, we, we just slide into this. And C.S. Lewis has said in a well known quote, he said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who, say to God, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All who are, that are in hell choose it. Without that self choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And those who seek find, those who knock, it is opened. And so there's a warning here. Revelation 14 comes to us as a warning that the harvest is coming. And God's people have been sealed, and the whole world has been warned. And so we have this, these fearful images of God's judgment, and then on the other hand, you have those marked as God's own, those who have heard the call to turn and fear God and follow Christ, and they'll be collected by Christ himself and brought into his presence. And so Revelation is written to us primarily, yes, as a warning, but also to give us hope that this does not need to be our end and that there is something greater. And so today, with the few minutes that we have left, this is the great harvest, that God's people have been sealed, the whole world has been warned, and the great harvest is coming. This is the message of Revelation chapter 14. So what does it mean to us? What is the call to us in light of the coming harvest? Well, two things. First, repent. For some of you, this is a simple call today, that the three angels are crying out and their voices come to you today. The first angel, remember, cried out, calling to all people, Fear God, give him glory, the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth. It has been cried out to the whole earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people, but that there is an eternal gospel that Christ has paid the price for your sin, that Christ has taken on the fullness of the wrath of God. Now repent and turn, and you will be counted in the harvest." If you don't, then you need to hear that this world and everything it values is going to crumble in the end. It is coming to its fulfillment, and that those who follow the beast will receive his end. So, repentance is to turn, it's to turn from heading one direction to heading into another. When the Bible calls us to repentance, what it's saying and what it calls us to is that we're called to turn from sin toward holiness. We're called to turn and repent from fearing men to fearing God alone, from worshiping created things to worshiping their creator. We're called to turn from the oversexualization of our world to finding our identity in Christ and allowing him to purify us from hearing the whispers of Satan, the ancient serpent, the great dragon, and allowing that to be the voice that shapes our lives and turn toward the voice of the good shepherd, trusting that even when he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, that there are green pastures on the other side. So the warnings are in front of you of torment and fire, of the winepress of God's wrath. And so be careful today. Because my fear for some of you is that you might be so caught up in, the, in the, the, the violence of the imagery of the text and whether you think it's palatable enough for people to come to their end that you miss that the warning has come to you and it's come to you in truth. But here's the grace today. What we see through Holy Week when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night is that Jesus went to pray he asked his followers to be with him his closest friends and disciples like stay awake with me pray with me and they kept falling asleep he tried three times to keep his friends awake and he was in agony it says that he was in such agony that he was, his sweat was like drops of blood and he's crying out to God the Father saying if there's any other way take this cup from me but not my will but yours be done What cup was Jesus talking about? He was talking about the the cup of the wine of God's wrath poured out in full strength into the cup of his anger that we read about in Revelation 14. Christ knew that he was going in our place for our sin as our representative and substitute to take on the fullness of God's wrath and anger and to drink that cup to its dregs. Why? So that when the day of God's judgment comes, we will not be reserved for wrath, but instead have been marked by the blood of the Lamb. And so turn and repent. Ultimately, the question today comes down to do you believe that you need a Savior? And are you willing to trust that Christ is enough? The second call to us today is to endure. See, this was right in the middle of the text. That you have the, the image of the throne and Mount Zion and God's people and being marked and sealed. That you have the warnings of the angels. And then it goes into the imagery of the harvest in the er, of the earth, both those who are God's own and those who are the beast's. But right in the middle, in verses 12 and 13, do you remember what it said? It talks about that those who follow the beast will have no rest day or night. But here is a call. For the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. If you're a follower of Christ, He may call you to places that you don't want to go. There's a call here. Endure it. Keep the commands of God. Love him with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. The harvest is coming. If you are one of God's own, Satan wants to destroy you. The great dragon, the ancient serpent, will stop at nothing to do so. He has, he has been given control over powers of anti-God authority and anti-God ideology, and the same world that is so dark that it could not recognize the light of its creator when Christ took on flesh will certainly hate those who reflect his light now. But death isn't a fearful thing if you're in Christ. You see that if you you stand against Christ, what's the end is that you have no rest. But if you're in him, if you're marked by God, you're given rest from your work. Jesus didn't come and create a new religion for us to work harder to do better. He came and called a people to himself and built a family. And he said, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you'll find rest for your soul. So many of us came, I know what it's like to come to Jesus for rest and realize our need for salvation and realize our need for mercy and our need for God's grace and, and then we still fall into the same old traps of grinding away on the hamster wheel of our own self-justification, of believing we were saved by grace, saved by, by, saved by grace through faith. And now we sanctify ourselves through our works. And so we're worn out trying to earn God's pleasure and earn God's favor, but it, it is, and, and so the most religious of us, the most committed Christians, the question is the same today. Do you realize your ongoing need for a savior? Do you realize that you can never earn your salvation? That, that the mark is given to you in Christ, but, but do you realize that? And are you able to rest in his sufficiency today? Is Jesus enough, or do you think you need to add on top? Jesus is coming to harvest those who are his, but I want you to realize in that imagery how active is the wheat in getting itself into the barn? Do you realize what we're called in Scripture? We are sheep who follow the shepherd's voice. Did you guys see over the past couple of weeks they found another sheep that had been gone missing for like six years? The thing had like hundreds of pounds of wool and couldn't even bend down to eat grass anymore. It was just this mass of wool, but like starving inside. Co- totally incapable of caring for itself. It needed a shepherd to help it. And to, if you don't cut the sheep's hair, it will die. That's the image of us. <laughs> We're called wheat here. Now, I mean, there's points where Jesus uses the same imagery and pray that workers are added to the harvest field, but the wheat doesn't get itself into the barn. The wheat doesn't even know how to sort out the weeds from its midst. It's Christ who comes in the end with his sickle and gathers us up. No matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, you need a Savior today and tomorrow and the day after and at the day of judgment But rest in that. If you've been marked by God as his own, nothing can take that away. Satan can't take that away. The dragon can't take it away. The worldly powers around us can't take it away. And so this Palm Sunday... Let's join the crowds who lined the streets in Jerusalem making the parade into the temple and we can cry out together again, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. This is the day that you have made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it because our only hope is that our Savior has come. And let's pray. Father, would you, would you use your word as a, as a somber warning for us today? Help us not to get too caught up in the difficult imagery that we become overwhelmed enough to dismiss it, but instead to see that by your grace, you've given us a clarifying portrait of a reality that we want nothing to do with. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and taken on and drank deeply of the fullness of the cup with the rightful wrath and anger of God. And we pray that you would help us to rest in your work, realizing our need for a Savior. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.